Hi, my name is Joe Jackson. I'm a journalist, author, interviewer and broadcaster. And down through the years, one of my great delights is, if not presenting radio programmes about the music I love, then being asked to discuss it on someone else's radio show. What follows is one such clip of myself and Mike Murphy, Ireland's greatest art show presenter ever, discussing something I wrote about during my tenure tenure with the Irish Times. You see, during that decade, the 1990s, I also happened to be the popular music correspondent for the art show on RTE Radio 1. And both that station and the Irish Times like to see themselves as the radio station and newspaper of record, respectively. These programme segments, and sometimes full shows, would usually occur after Mike read an article I wrote and phoned me to appear on the programme, or after I myself would recommend an item that might be of interest to our listeners and even provide a script, around which Mike and I would happily improvise. By the way, if you want to read some of the articles I wrote about music, the arts and popular culture in general, plus politics, check out my website, joejacksoninterviewer.com. But first, another classically trained musician who at one stage outsold every recording artist in the world with the exception of Elvis. I'll be talking to Joe Jackson later about his career and this is one of his biggest hits, Neil Sedaka. Breaking up his heart too. Joe, I guarantee you there are people listening here on a bank holiday Monday now and they were singing along, <laughs> whether they knew it or not to that. OK, that was Neil Sadaka there, breaking up his heart to do. And uh, I mentioned that he was classically trained. What actually was his background? Um, he was, uh, when he was 16 years old, he studied at the Juilliard School of Music in New York. And when he was 16, he was chosen by Arthur Rubenstein as the person with the most promise in uh, the field of classical playing and got to perform in American radio. So his route would have been that, allied to the fact that uh, a lovely image, I uh, once interviewed him for Hot Press, uh, a lovely image of him going up to the uh, Apollo Theatre in Harlem to see rhythm and blues acts like Ray Charles. And I said to him, you know, in an audience of any given evening, there would have been yourself, Neil Diamond, Dion, Bobby Darren, all, all, the ta- all taken there. All the, all, and as, as he said, yeah, so that other bass to him, and he argued with me that his bass is a pop singer. And it comes across to that. It's very much New York doo-wop. So yeah. he thinks that's as legitimate as Southern rock and roll. But listening to that again, you were right with people, people uh, tuning into that. His hooks were always irresistible. And I don't think he ever got full credit for the way he used a studio. That was pre-Phil Spector, like the double-tracked vocals, the hand clapping and the hooks, the counter melodies, all that stuff. He used the studio in a way that Phil Spector would then be praised for, like, three years later. Okay. You know, so, I mean, he, he should get uh, immediately credit for all that stuff. Did he start out as a singer or a composer or an arranger? Well, he started out, he started out with all those things going on because his first group was kind of, was a New York doo-wop group called The Tokens and he arranged uh, hits for them. And then he wrote, he wrote hits like, um, I think, Stupid Cupid for Connie Francis, which got him his break as a songwriter. And uh, he also said about that, that when he sang for Connie, Fra- when he sang it for Connie Francis, he sang a number of other songs. And she thought that he and Howard Greenfield, who was the lyricist that worked with Sadaka for, for all the major hits of the early years, 
she said she thought the songs were too intelligent, too too sophisticated to be pop songs. So before he left the room, he said, he said, well, we'll try this one. And Stupid Cupid was kind of a pastiche pop song. And she said, that's the one. She loved it. And, she, and they broke through. And then out of that, he got a, a deal with Steve Scholes. And you mentioned Elvis. Scholes had signed Presley. Uh, they signed uh, Sedaka as a teen idol. And he had his first hit with The Diary and, and an absolute pastiche rocker called I Go Ape with the classic couplet that I did have to challenge him on. You know, a Yatesian couplet. Ramalama ding ding dong, I'm related to old King Kong. I mean, <laughs> you don't get more literary than that. Or classically trained, comes right through. And, and he did. I mean, it's surprising. But that he those said that a lot of Europeans must have tuned into that on a primal level because it was a huge hit over here. <laughs> and yet he loved um, the work of Lorenz Hart and yeah. Berlin yeah. and Gershwin, didn't he? So he yeah. had a real feel for good classical music. Well, again, to, to emphasize the fact that he uh, he would have written the music. And I'll read a quote from the interview because when he said all his uh, early role models were Lorenz Hart and Irving Berlin, and he said to me, how and me really studied Larry Hart's work and George Gershwin and Irving Berlin. We used to break the songs down into their constituent parts. We'd look at the structure of the rhymes and see what kind of chord progressions they used and the harmonic changes, where those chords would change and how the intervals would skip. That was a very kind of deconstruct pop song at that level. Mm -hmm. And then, even in Breaking Up Is Hard To Do, he proudly says, though how many of us will notice, he was the first rock composer to use a kind of minor seventh. And to, actually, he puts rhymes in places that was not normal in pop songs. But I also think that when he, uh, he did, and he said, though they're his biggest hits, he feels his home runs are the sad songs he wrote. And not just the later ones, but the earlier ones. And I think the most beautiful example of that, where he says that the use of the minor chord and the cry at the soul of something in this is very true to his Jewish base. And the song is You Mean Everything to Me. You are the answer to my lonely prayer. You are an angel from above. was so lonely till you came to me with the wonder of your love. Now, that was from what, late 50s, oh, I mean, late early 50s, 60s? Early 60s yeah, and, yeah. and a terrific orchestration. Yeah, there. well, that's, I mean, that really does. He uh, he said at the end of the interview that he, that he likes, he, he, he would see his lineage, not just going back. And I did say that minor, uh, the minor chord and the cry at the heart of the music, he brings back to Jolson and uh, uh, Eddie Cantor. And it's his Jewish bass too. But also, I mean, he studied Beethoven. He studied, he studied Mozart. And you can hear those kind of Beethovenian kind of runs with the orchestra. Do you reckon that Neil Sedaka was at his best with sad, emotional songs? Yeah, I think, I think he was. And I think, uh, well, I, I think he believes that they're the songs that are more true to his soul, to use that romantic phrase. But uh, I also think for most people who grow up in the 50s or his second career, which started in the 70s, they would probably relate to, uh, you know, Calendar Girl, uh, Breaking Up is Hard to Do, and, um, you know, Love Will Keep Us Together, Standing on the Inside, or stuff like that, which are hook-ridden kind of classic up-pop songs. Okay. So there's a kind of dichotomy there between what he would say, but I would agree with him that the better songs were those songs that captured that minor mode. But then How I think about the same Solitaire? Is true Solitaire now is a, is a good one. Yeah, well, Solitaire is that, uh, is that kind of 
has got that kind of the classic imagery of the person alone and the minor chords. And Solitaire would be like a grown-up version of You Mean Everything to Me. It has that kind of uh, uh, slow soul movement. Yeah. You know? that, And it was recorded by Elvis, among others, wasn't it? Yeah, he hates Presley's version, you know, and Elvis, because Presley's version, he said Presley did not respect the chord sequence, he didn't respect the melody. But if you listen to Presley's version of that, Presley recorded it again, and we've probably talked about this before, when, uh, like about a year before he died, and he was too heavy to go into a recording studio. It was recorded in his home, and there's a demonic feel to it. It's like he's singing from hell. And, uh, I mean, I saw one reading of the uh, solitaire lyric is that they, people when he sings the King of Hearts is well concealed, and we have touched on this before, the gay community have reappropriated that song, saying that he is singing to a man, be the King of Hearts being the man he is singing to. And when the Carpenters recorded it, they would not sing that lyric. But when some gay singer then did it later, he restored the lyric. Elvis didn't sing it either. So there's that kind of uh, question mark hanging over even a song like um, Solitaire. Mm. But I think Presley's version of the song is superb, emotionally, musically, Nonsense. Not so good. Not so good. You know? um, it, at the beginning of his career, I mean, he must be making huge money yes. in royalties now from songs like Solitaire. Well, he, I, said, he, he did say to me that Solitaire, and he's one of the few people which I really admired about him. When you talk with these rock and roll stars, they, they, they're running shy when it comes to asking them about money. He said that Solitaire is worth uh, a million alone. A million? A, a, million, a million pounds, a million dollars alone a year. A year. On royalties. Just the and one he, song. Yeah, and he said for the rest of his catalogue, it's a six-figure sum that comes in yearly and will come in for every year of his life and for every year of his children's life, that he's a millionaire many times over. Must be a seven-figure. Well, yeah, but yeah, he said, yeah, okay, uh, yeah, at that stage, maybe you don't need to know how to count. <laughs> <laughs> but he also said that. Well, um, and there's a telling aspect to it in that he was... He claims he was ripped off at the outset. He was part of the Brill Building Brigade, and he said, like, Don Kirshner, who then created the Monkeys and all that, they would be getting £100,000 a year for producing his work, and all he would be getting as an employee of the building was the royalties on the, on the uh, radio plays. Mm. So there is that, and that's why when we play a song like Standing on the Inside, which is when he made his comeback in 1970, if you, apart from the sweetness in his voice, there's a kind of bitterness as in, you know, here I am back again, and it's like I paid no dues, but don't believe it. Standing on the outside, looking in. You know, it's been a long time, don't know where to begin. Okay, there we had Sadaka and Standing on the Inside. Now, came the 60s, and then, of course, you had the Beatles, and, of course, mm -hmm. you had Bob Dylan. Did these, uh, did these have a detrimental effect on performers like Sadaka? Yeah, well, it was the end of the era of the teen idols. I mean, the pre-Beatle teen idols virtually were wiped away in, like, a year, in 64. But he also said to me, and it was a good point to make, that uh, rock music and rock criticism then became uh, too uh, focused on the word post-Dylan. And that's absolutely true. So, so he was writing more imaginative melodies. He was stretching things. Uh, and number one, RCA would not put them out. Number two, the fans didn't want them. So he basically retired in 66 and started producing, writing uh, songs for other people like Johnny Mathis. But then around 1970, he did what he regards as his best album called Emergence, which was um, a response to Carole King, who... O'Carroll had been written about. Yeah, he, uh, he had a relationship with Carole King and, and uh, O'Carroll. Yeah, yeah, and O'Carroll. The her first single was O'Neill in response to that, which was Brill Building Perfection. O'Neill? 
Yeah, O'Neill. <laughs> really? Yeah. Okay. Well, classic. Should be sought out by everybody on the planet. And uh, she doesn't talk much about it these days. So she released Tapestry and he released the singer-songwriter album in the early 70s called Emergence, which was described by Rolling Stone as a, a legit, as, as legitimate uh, a comeback as any other kind of teen idol of the 50s. And it was like Jim Croce he was compared to. And that was, a, that was a very good album, very satirical, songs like Cardboard California, mocking the whole tone of California Times. And also, as he said, Symphony phonically stretching the music to four and five minutes where the Beethovenian thing we referred to earlier became a dominant mode on that album. And then he followed that with uh, the, the album we've just heard a track from, Standing on the Inside, where he recorded with 10cc. So he really got, and he is quite angry that songs like Or The Hungry Years or Bad Blood, which was his biggest hit in America, that people continually come along and say, oh, Carol, a breaking up is hard to do, yeah. when he believes his greatest body of work is uh, of the 70s and onwards. When you say they use songs like that, oh, Carol, and those kind of songs, they, they are, and uh, the Connie Francis one that we talked about earlier on, they're trite in the main. And uh, would he not like to be remembered? Or supposing he was compared to someone like Barry Manilow, would he be upset? Well, yeah, no, but he, see, he would argue that, and, and he'd slap your face now for saying that, because he would say that they are trite lyrically, which is probably criticising his, his lyricist. But they're also a reflection of their time. You know what I mean? That is what teen idols were supposed to be singing at that point. But as he said, musically, they're more sophisticated than a lot of the pop songs that were being written. But he hates the comparison to Barry Manilow. And he said he, he would, if he dies, the idea of somebody, his family reading an obituary that says, uh, you know, teen idol in the Barry Manilow mode would just drive him mad. And it ties in when he says, because uh, he says that the difference is that, and it's his word, I do have balls, I do have soul, I do have substance. And he claims that Barry Manilow does not. So he hates that comparison, but it's eternally thrown in his direction. And is, is he a maligned character? Is he... You know, there's a kind of a gap in his entire career uh, in and around the 70s. And he's he is, is he thought of as a bit of a lightweight in comparison with some of yeah, the Yeah, he others? would be. That, that Written off as just a kind of a Barry Manilow clone, you know, by people who don't yeah. know better or don't know about the early years. And there is that thing, and we referred to it earlier, which is the um, the gay association with Neil Sedaka. I remember the tabloids, and I did ask him this question. The tabloids had... Uh, Tra-la-la-la-la-la-la, I am not a fairy, says Neil Sedaka. I remember seeing that headline and I ran that by him. And it came out of the fact that Howard Greenfield died of an AIDS-related illness. And when Sedaka talks about he and Howie writing our last song together about their relationship, I say, well, people are going to read that as if you're singing it to him. He says, I am not gay, I am straight, he is married, he has children. But in rock culture, there's always been that. And there's also been... Uh, the response against his voice. Like, he sings too much like a woman. It's like Nina Simone sounds more like a man than he does. Mm. So there has been that question, which I, you and I have talked about before. If you're not a kind of black leather jacketed macho... Uh, male sexuality asserting rocker you're pushed over to the edges and he's probably the most extreme example of that he always sang like something else mm. so I think for that reason and because a lot of rock critics are really rooted and rock historians in evaluating the word and they wouldn't know as he said a kind of innovative chord progression or a, a subverting of a classical melody line if it hits them in the yeah. face. So for all those reasons, yeah, he's very much maligned. And, and like um, people, person we talked about recently, Pat Boone, written out of pop rock history. Wrongly, I think. How... D OK, so how do you rate Sadako? Where do you place him? Well, I would place him... Uh, I think he was... Um, he's of the first breed of uh, rock and roll singer-songwriters, uh, as in Buddy Holly and Roy Orbison. 
You know, I mean, he, he was a pre-Beatle, pre-Dylan singer-songwriter. You know, I mean, he wrote mostly the melodies, but he saw himself in that sense. And I think as a pop composer uh, of his time, he was one of the most innovative. OK. We're going to finish with our last song together. Any thoughts you wish to add? Uh, yeah, he's, to yeah, he said that that's where, when he sings this, and the last time I talked to him was after a concert in The Point, and he said that he's not the only one in the audience who has tears in his eyes when he plays this song. And he says, I don't know whether it's because I'm Jewish and there's an Irish thing. He says, but somehow people relate to the cry at the heart of this, whatever it's about, whoever it's sung to. OK, Joe Jackson, thank you very much. If you want to see the man live, Neil Sedaka, then he's at the National Concert Hall on the 12th of May. Hi, Joe Jackson here again. I thank you for listening to this edition of the Joe Jackson Interviews podcast. And don't forget, if you want to read any of my articles, check out my website, joejacksoninterviewer.com.